0: This podcast brought to you by ASIS, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesandarrows.com/about/participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Accenture and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. We're all big fans of user-centered design, and all of us have tried our hand at CSS or database design. But somewhere along the way, the third leg of the tripod got lost. Business. In this talk, founder of Boxes and Arrows and product developer at LinkedIn, Christina Woodkey, walks through the most common business models, the desired user behavior that supports them, and how those business models affect the architecture of the website, including features and functionality. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers
1: thank you for coming i know i'm against some tough competition so i appreciate you being here ross sunger has got this marvelous heuristic thing oh yeah that's happening now you can sneak out Um, so um this is something i've actually been noodling on back and forth for some time and recently i became a product manager at linkedin and i've been spending a lot of time working on the problem of how do you determine what new products you should be building and what features do you build on them and um i've spent some time with the entrepreneur community for a while and I realized that um, they were often copying Facebook when that wasn't the market they were in or copying Google when that wasn't the business they were in. So um, this is my current thinking. You're getting an advantage of some very new thinking here or the disadvantage, we'll see how it plays out, of uh, how I'm starting to think about what the relationship is to business and how you actually des- make design choices based on what the business model is, which is a little different than what we usually talk about, which is user-centered design. So I'm gonna get a few things out of the way. Everybody here believes that when they work they do so to make money. We have to go to work, right? And we do it so that people pay us. There's like, okay, nobody's gonna disagree with that. Because I was raised by hippies. And we understood that money was evil, so this is why it's taken me so long to come to these realizations. Um, That maybe money was actually something that could be beneficial. In fact, if you are a business money is oxygen. If you do not have money you will go away, you will die. And it doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit. it doesn't matter what kind of business, LLC, C Corp, whatever, if you do not have money, you will die, period. Um, it's, it's just necessary. Businesses create value for which they receive money and money provides them the resources, hiring people, servers, so on. I mean, it is getting cheaper and cheaper to run a business but it still hasn't reached zero. And then, sorry. Um, they provide value. And I kind of think of it as the, uh, a system, you know, money is the oxygen and then value is the CO that allows the trees to grow and if everything's working, the, the users are providing that beautiful CO and the money is providing that beautiful oxygen and everybody's happy. So um, this is uh, something that Scott Hirsch talks about. Everybody always talks about ROI. All you re- need to know about it is it's a return on investment. I mean, if you know what the acronym stands for, you get the idea. The business puts some money out in hopes of something good happening and uh, something good happening would be the investment. They created some value. Um, Something else that we forget about a lot is that um, value can take a lot of different forms. Um, Even though you do need money, your value you're providing, the main core value you're providing might be a lot of different things. Um, In this case, we're gonna talk about classical stuff such as increased sales, reduced cost, but then there's achieving the mission for a new nonprofit. You know, Wikipedia does need money, believe me. They need a whole server farm, but they're not a for-profit, but they still need money or else that value is no longer going to be provided. So, in order to achieve their mission of providing the world's information, they still need to actually have some money coming in. And then investments, you know, you want to try to do it with as few people as possible, uh, using resources more effectively, etc. And these are all the things that the business is looking at trying to tune. So if you're gonna go talk to your business, there's some things you probably should know to have a conversation. And hopefully we can think about these a little bit. What does it mean to be responsible for profit and lust? This was one of the big shockers for me um, when I became a product manager is suddenly um, I can design the most beautiful, perfect, thoughtful, website in the entire world I can consider for every single little thing and set expectations and catch errors and everything and my ass is still grass if the if the site doesn't get used as a designer I would get applauded people take screenshots so they can find it five years later when it's gone but as a product manager, if it's not being successful, and I can make the ugliest, worst, most dreadfully designed website in the world, and sometimes people will use it anyway, and I think we can probably all think of examples. So um, my values are, are lightly conflicted occasionally, um, but you really have to be in it for the profit and loss. And I think the designers might also benefit from starting to think about, not only am I taking care of the users, but am I taking care of the business, which gives me money, which keeps me from waiting tables. Um, what's the difference between an expense and investment expenses? Yes, we do have to have servers and investment is what if we can provide this whole new service? Maybe we can try to find a way to get some money, um, to try out new things. That's an investment. We think there's going to be an advantage of trying to do something we've never done before. What are the key metrics for your business unit? That's a really critical one for everybody to know about. You should know what it, what are the signs of health? What are the signs of life in your business? Is it how many people sign up? Is it how many people sign up and then do something? is it, so if you think about it, if you're spending a lot of time on the sign-up form, um, but the real metric is how many people um, post to um, the website, Then you're spending time on the wrong thing. Very often designers find themselves caring about things that don't necessarily align with the business goals. So um, that's the sweet spot. And what market are you in? This is a really important one that I'm going to talk about a lot. And what is your unique value proposition? So if you're a bookseller, how are you different than Amazon? You know, it's very easy to go and copy all the best practices, but um, are you really differentiating? Are you creating new opportunities? Are you doing it to go faster so you can spend more time doing new things? Um, These are really good questions to always be sort of noodling in the back of your head as you're working. So I'm going to talk a little bit about profit and loss. um, I went to Catania, which is in Sicily not that long ago, and um, I went to the fish market. And I was like, wow, there's all of business right there in front of me. So uh, we've got three different fish sellers here. And they've all chosen different locations. Um, at walking from the hotel to the fish market, there was a guy who was just set up on the corner, sitting there, you know, selling some fish. And I'm sure it cost him nothing except running away from the cops to, uh, to sell there. There was another guy who was sort of on the outer fringes of the market, and he didn't have a very nice stand and it probably cost him whoever much they paid the market from what I understand from the fish market you know you can pay you know the equivalent of 10 bucks and, and set up outside or you can have the very sexy center where all the people are make a very beautiful experience and it costs a lot of money. The problem is that you have stock, you buy these fish, and you know how long fish are good for. So you got to turn that stock. So the question is, is it safer to buy a smaller amount of stock, spend less money and get going on the edge of town, or are you going to get more, get in the center town where you have more buyers and you can gamble on getting more stock. And I I think that's just an interesting um, way of thinking about the sort of larger business problems. You know, do you want to sell less, make a smaller margin for pricing? Like are your sardines going for, you know, two bucks and you paid this guy $1.85 for it? Or are you in that sweet, sexy spot where you look more trustworthy you can get $5 a sardine? You know, you think about advertising. I love this guy. He's like yelling, sardines, sardines, sardines. You know, you want to do that? You want to hand out pamphlets? Would it cost you money to pay some kid to run some pamphlets out? Talk about your fish location. Diversifying, are you just gonna be the sardine guy? Are you gonna sell some squid too? Um, Differentiation, it's a fish market and this guy's selling beans. That's crazy, crazy like a fox, you know? So there's opportunities here. So what are you doing in your marketplace, if you understand it, to allow yourself to, to get an edge? And I can tell you these guys are making just enough money to pay for their stock you know, put dinner on the table and then get out there the next day. And Sometimes we get a little comfortable in the giant corporations. We forget that, you know, you're only a, a hair's breadth away from extinction, except perhaps Yahoo, which has been a little more aware of it lately than usual. Um, sorry, guys. So you might say, all this business stuff, it's not my job. I love, I love this slide I used at my other workshop. If, uh, if you do a search, a, a web search for not my job, this is the number one result. Um, it's actually uh, the number one result if you... Uh, it looks a lot like what happens if you don't do your job. The reason I think this stuff is your job as designers is because of this equation and I also keep showing this equation over and over again stolen from the brilliant Josh Porter who stole it from a a psychologist named Llewellyn. This is Llewellyn's equation and he says behavior is a function of the person and the environment and when I saw this like the clouds parted, the lights came out, I was like hallelujah. I can't control people, only Their mommies and daddies can control them, and even then, not so much. But environment, I'm a designer, right? I actually change environments, which means I can change behavior. And if you're a business and people come to your site, what do you want to do? you want them to behave in certain ways. You know, that may sound a little evil to some people but you do really want them to buy things or find stuff even as a nonprofit. You want them to find the information they want. So we have this magic power where we are the ones who can actually change behavior and make a business profitable. That's kind of exciting. So this is um, an example of, um, of an environment. This is actually a cathedral in Cordoba, Spain and this is a, I think this is a great example of how um, the architecture of a site can change people's behavior. When you go in here, you know you're there to be with tons and tons of people, worshiping, you know, imagining majesticness, being inspired. There's other rooms like this where I, I'm actually not sure what this room was designed for. Um, but uh, you, know, you go to a little intimate club, you know what that's for. If you go to a restroom, you get a sense of what's there. The design affects the behavior over and over again. Um, Josh also talks a lot about activities, objects, and features. So um, I'm going to—I just want to drop this idea in your head because I'm going to talk about it as we go through examples. But when you um, when you go through your design, you want to think about what is the one activity that my user must accomplish in order for my business to be successful. And really, every time I ask this to people, they write down like 14 things. No, really, what is the one thing? And then when you've got that one thing, you can break it up into little pieces. Like what are the objects they need to, to accomplish that? And what are the things they do with those objects? And how does it fit together? But the really important part is, what is, what is that one thing? And, what's that se- and then you can go to the second thing. And then you can go to the third thing. So what do your users have to do for your business to be successful? The other question is, who are your most important users? Um, we often think about them sort of as undifferentiated mass. Uh, mass. I think um, engineers in particular tend to think of them as, you know, they're all problems, they all have to be coded for equally, but we know we can optimize um, our time on our most useful users. Um, I'm working on social right now, so I'm thinking a lot about those particular problems um, right now. So this is the power law of participation, and it was done by Ross Mayfield, who is a really brilliant Silicon Valley entrepreneur. And what he says is that you know, of your 90%, 8% of your users, only 2%, maybe only 1%, are doing most of the work for you. So on Wikipedia they have this beautiful myth of the, you know, everybody's going in there and editing. No, 1% of, of Wikipedia people are the, called the Wikipedians. And they go every day and they edit like mad and they watch over their little area and they care deeply about it. And those people are doing a lot of heavy lifting for your business or for your nonprofit's mission. And so you really have to think about what do they need to get better at their job? What do they need to move forward? So one of my favorite examples is um, from Yahoo Groups. So on Yahoo! groups, you can actually um, change the color and the background and you can put up a a background setting, you know? Like, why on earth would you actually do that? Does that sound like it's a really important thing for what's essentially a message board? Well, the thing is the group managers like to do that. They like to put their brand there. And when they're looking at the 50,000 group software out there, they might choose to locate their group on Yahoo Groups just because they can make it pink if they're a breast cancer awareness group. And if you think about it, this was a a pain in the neck thing to implement, but the group managers love it. And the group managers are only a tiny percentage of the community, but those group managers are throwing out the jerks, they're watching for profanity, they're encouraging people to post, they're welcoming new users. I mean, can you imagine how much it would cost to pay somebody to do all that work? I mean the cost benefit ratio is really high. So if you really pick out who's doing the heavy lifting for your site and really double down on making sure that they've got what they need to be successful, you'll find it's a very uh, cost effective way to approach um, feature sets. So I'm going to talk about, um, well I'm actually going to talk about four of these five models um, in the interests of time and sanity. Um, but there's a lot of different business models. Um, these are business models in particular for the web, I'm a web person. So if you're not talking about web then you, know, you can ask me does this apply elsewhere and I'll try to make something up. Um, but uh, these, are, these are business models and they really affect how you decide what your feature sets are. So um, I love Hello Dolly, I don't know if you're familiar with the musical. but. Um, I've always been a woman who arranges things for pleasure and the profit it derives. I think of Amazon. You know, marketplace is all about saying She's a, she's a professional matchmaker. She introduces people who fall in love and get married and pay her for the pleasure. And uh, that's what Amazon is. He's like, oh, you seller over here, and oh, you cute little buyer over here. We're going to put you together, and you're going to make beautiful music together, and you're going to give me a little money on the side f- to make that happen. And the marketplaces, there's a lot of different ones. There's the business-to-business ones, you know, who say, hey, I'm going to come in and help, uh, you know, fit you, you get the perfect server there's ones that are business to consumer, like it, or even consumer to consumer, which is eBay. And it usually charges a fee or commission. So um, eBay is like one of the most perfect ones examples. So when you think about eBay in the uh, Hello Dolly model, um, they have to choose who are the most important users, right? And I would argue, and they would argue, I know a lot of people who work over there, that the, buy, the seller will go wherever the buyers are. In this case, it's the opposite of the Yahoo Groups model. The buyers are, you know, you—they're the ones who are paying you, but they'll actually—they're very promiscuous. They will go wherever there are buyers. So instead, they spend all their time building features for buyers. So, you know, the users have to be able to find the products, evaluate the seller, and make a purchase. And this is one place where you can probably go back to business and say, oh, I know you want to build this new thing for the uh, the sellers, but actually, you know, the buyers are complaining and we're worried about losing the customer base and blah, blah, blah. I mean, if it's a good company, they should understand what the ecosystem is here. Um, eBay is very smart about that. And um, I remember when Yahoo Auctions tried to get going back in... Uh 98 or something and they built like a much more robust beautiful platform but the sellers didn't flip, They, they optimi- or the uh, buyers didn't flip, the sellers all went there set up shops, the buyers didn't come and then you know a year later it was pretty much done. Um, so who, who are the people who are the most important to the business? Um, so this one is all about, um, come on, Advertising, advertising model is also a really uh, traditional one. A lot of people think it's dead, but I'm not seeing a lot of um, I'm not seeing a lot of signs of that. Actually, it's it's uh, there are certain types of advertising that are still doing really well. So the uh, you've got to have a reason um, for people to actually come to the site. It's a very familiar one, right? You put up your advertising, you put up your your content. People come. You put an ad. The advertiser pays you for the pleasure of being there. Um, it seems really easy, but it's actually proving to be very hard. So this is a, um, I, I got so lucky, I went to Yahoo this morning, and they had an ad for psoriasis, persi- I'm sorry, I can't even say it. Psoriasis. Uh, psoriasis, thank you, and I was like, God bless you, Yahoo, you, you know, this could have been an ad for American Express or something, but today I got psoriasis. Um, so, you know, this is this is an advertising model, perhaps not at its best. I came here, um, I wasn't logged in, I don't think, no, I'm hi Christina. So I was logged in, it's their mistake. They're just throwing stuff up. It's a big, it's a, it's a top page, it gets a lot of traffic. Hopefully somebody who comes to Yahoo will get psoriasis. Um, but they actually have other places where the advertising is actually significantly more powerful. Um, on Yahoo shopping, we used to say advertising is content. In other words, if you're out there shopping for flowers, do you care that there's a giant flower ad? Do you even think about it as advertising or you're just going, Hmm, look at all those flowers, oh there's a big flower one. I mean when you're flipping through the yellow pages those big ads usually tell you something like this person's more established, this person's older, you know, because they have more money as a business. You don't, the advertising starts becoming contextual because it's what you're trying to do and it also uh, tends to be very strong as a brand, although this is a pretty ugly ad. Um, And then of course there's the mother of all advertising. Uh, the mother load I should say which is search advertising. Search advertising is really extraordinary because um, what happens is you have somebody looking for something like SEO and you know that what they're doing is probably looking for an SEO company. You have a good guess of it. And those people will pay tons of money for people who are actively looking for it. You're really almost acting at this point like a marketplace. It's almost like a hybrid right now because you're going to be matching people. And so the search engines will all put figure out what kind of query is it? Is it a commercial query or is it a general query? And then they'll dial up or dial down the advertising because, once again, the advertising is becoming content. The search results are actually relevant search results. And at Yahoo, we did tons and tons of eye tracking and what we found was that we got hot spots all over the advertising anytime it was relevant and nobody looked at it. Like apparently you land there, you're on the page for less than a second and within that second you've seen everything on the page in the corner of your eye, you figured out what's relevant or what not and you've made a click. And if you click through on the, uh, the main part. So we as designers we can ask ourselves what are, like Dan Brown talked about the rules what are the things that are starting to make it make sense? So this is Mall of America's, which I think of a lot like Yahoo. Um, there's a lot of shiny things. So just like in the mall, the shiny things bring them in, the roller coaster brings them in, the food court brings them in, and then you need to actually get them into the stores. So they have to actually see that there's stores there behind the roller coaster, right? So we as designers, how do we actually make that them notice it? And we can think about making them notice it by making it like the size of a house. We could also make them notice it by making it a lot more relevant. Um, Dan Brown talked about rules. What are the rules for advertising? When does it show up? When doesn't it show up? We can use our powers as information architects to create a a classification of advertising and then we can do treat it almost like search in which the human being is the query and then the advertising is the answer. So uh, Facebook does things like that because you're of a certain age and you do certain things and you see certain ads and one of the biggest things we can do is we can give people reasons to share their demographic information. The reason that's important is because click through um, will go the 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 price per million um the price people will pay to show an ad to a million people goes up, up, up if you have demographic information. So like advertising age gets $75 every time somebody sees an ad. And the reason is because the only people who see the ads on advertising age are advertising people who are probably looking for a very limited set of services. Um, they get that for free because they're advertising age. But if you're on a regular website like say the New York Times or uh, Connie Ness, then how do you get a higher cost per uh, image then the way to do that is to actually encourage people to give people reasons to share their demographic information. And the way to do that is not to like give them a giant form to register and trick them into registering but perhaps give them a profile, right? I mean, what if they could have a profile on New York Times, which they're starting to do with Times People, and that was a way they shared uh, their favorite reads and they could become a little mini guru. Or maybe you have a dating section and that gets uh, demographic information. Once you realize that demographic information gets you money for advertising, you can start thinking about a whole new set of features. And of course, there's the precondition, which is, is your place actually worth visiting at all? Um, Which is, (laughs) kind of an important piece, like you can just throw up a magazine but if the content's bad or the interaction's painful, there's, you know, people aren't going to go there, they're going to go someplace else. So another uh, important model is the infamous community model, Um, Linux being a great example of it. Um, So the viability of the community model is on user loyalty, the connections they make both with the site and with other people on that site. Humans are very social, they care about each other, they want to touch base with each other. And what's interesting is there have always been sites that have been using it to build source. I mean, not always, but obviously since um, when did it it start? Late 80s? Something like that with Unix. Um, But uh, open content is becoming bigger and bigger. A lot of people call it uh, user generated content. You want people to come make user generated content on your site. And I'm sure a lot of you have your boss coming to you saying, you know, I want some user generated content. I hear it's free. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, So the question is how are you going to make, how are you as a designer make that that occur? How are you going to make that happen? Um, So you have to think a little bit about um, what do the users need, right? Um, The business needs them to come because it's going to reduce their costs. It's free. Um, It will increase the visits which might uh, even benefit another advertising model like uh, advertising, another model like advertising. But the users need to create identity. Um, one of the key motivators in social is being able to be, you know, have, have your ego stroked. You want to be able to say, it's me, I'm the one who's wrote all these beautiful, wonderful things. Um, you want to connect with other users. Um, the reason for that is because the more users you're connected to, the more things you do um, will get broadcast out. So I, one of the key concepts from uh, viral marketing is you're a person right and you get a little email this button and i might email it to two people but if i was connected like through twitter tons of people were following me and i put a link up suddenly 800 people get it of which a percentage will come in or if let's say i belong to a group and i send it to my facebook group you know let's or the IS, ixda group or the aces group it would suddenly bring in you know 2000 you know, you have to think about how are your users getting connected to each other so that their activity then brings in more and also reinforces those social bonds. Build a reputation, it's like creating an identity. Uh, create and share content work, et cetera, that's that, that free content we, we love so much. I think the, the real secret is users must care. Um, the model behind me is um, the Wikipedia donation uh, ki- curve and they were uh, raising money not that long ago and they were really, really very metrics driven about it. Um, they have amazing costs they actually have some staff now they actually have to have HR they actually do have all the server farms to complete their mission and which means that occasionally they need real money and they don't do advertising as I'm sure we've all noticed and we like that Um, so they they do fundraisers and the fundraisers isn't viable if people didn't find this an incredibly valuable service Um, it's a critically important thing it's interesting because um, I'm hearing a lot of people say, oh, Twitter, whatever, they don't have a business model, they're dead. And the fact is that I know for a reason that many people, including LinkedIn, including Facebook, including Twitter, created these services with no business model, knowing for a fact that the money will come if you create value and users are coming. You actually can find a lot of different ways to monetize later if you get users to care. So honestly, for all the the business types, users do have to actually care. Um, but for community, it's, it's, it's pretty fierce. Um, sometimes it's love. So the scrip- subscription model is a pretty basic straightforward model. I think, um, I love, uh, this shot of these magazines, cause I'm pretty sure none of these magazines could keep themselves alive very well with advertising. At least it would be a hard, hard call. Um, it's from a, a local library, but, um, users are charged a periodic, uh, Fee daily, monthly, annual, whatever, to subscribe for our service, one of the beauties about subscription models is um, uh, a large percentage of people will sign up for something like blogger that 's five bucks a month, and they may not blog, but they may pay for several years it 's not really hurting them, and they might blog eventually. Um, it's sort of like gym memberships gym memberships are the original subscription model so you know it's January 8th and it's time to like maybe try to follow through on a couple of your resolutions you sign up for the gym membership and then six months later you realize oh I've been paying for this and gosh I haven't actually worked out um they gyms uh routinely oversell to more people than they can fit in the gym because they know that a large number of people are not going to show up um, and you can easily imagine how that might affect the internet, you can actually accept more subscriptions than your servers can handle as long as you're watching your usage rates very carefully. Um, so this is content services, so- software as a service, and don't forget the ISPs. So we all know these ones, right? Netflix. I mean, how many of you guys have signed up for Netflix and then suddenly realized the same three movies have been sitting on your, uh, <laughs> on your TV stand for six months? Sometimes I wonder if they should have ever created On Demand, because now I'm finally getting value for Netflix for the first time since I signed up. Um, Basecamp's another great one, right? You know, you sign up and it just charges your credit card, you don't have to worry about it, and you use it or you don't use it. Um, But it's there. Um, it's, it's, It's a fine way if you think you have something that people will use periodically, regularly or not regularly. And you can just create a good, positive user experience. Get people in. Free trials are really critical for subscription services because once you've got the free trial, it's a little easier to say, okay, now it's time to pay. And you're like, well, that was kind of okay. Maybe I'll pay you up. Um, So users need to be able to evaluate the offering. Get a sense of why would I sign up. Getting that credit card is hard. Once you've got the credit card, you can, you know, not worry about it too much. So you need to make a really compelling argument. Users need to be able to say, oh, is this for me? Is this important to me? And this is all the stuff we've talked about endlessly with the usability. You need to subscribe and unsubscribe so you don't get a reputation for being evil. Um, subscribing is, is, is the good thing, but you need to be able to unsubscribe fairly easily um, and uh, realize the value that's offered. So the tricky part about the gym membership is six months later, you realize you never go to the gym and what's the value? But um, if you can create an ongoing hope of value, um, then, then you can keep people going. Netflix is really good at that because what they do is they get you to rate the movies and they make recommendations and they say hey this new thing has come in and they're like oh yeah the new thing is well maybe I'll mail in these three and get three new ones and then I, they might sit there for another six months or you can use them regularly you know they're happy to support you if you're using it regularly. Um, so there's this funny balance I mean I do know that I've been speaking a little bit evilly about the people who oversell and I know airplanes do the same but um, if you don't realize the value offered at some point or another, people will actually turn off the credit card. So there's got to be that, that, that sort of balance between the two. Um, so there are a lot of combination offerings out there right now. Um, advertising and community. Can anybody guess, you know what, what this could be, what this company could be? Who combines advertising and community?: I shouldn't.: Yes, MySpace, MySpace is a good one, yeah. Facebook's another one. Yeah, exactly. And it works because of the demographics are getting, they're using community to get demographics. And, uh, here's another one. This is actually my company, although there should be two more circles, but that would take up a lot of space. We actually have five business models going on at, at this time. And some of the obvious ones are of course the community and the advertising. And then we have the subscription model where, and we have actually like about six different levels of subscription models. Um, there's a lot of advantage to having multiple business models. There's a lot of disadvantages. Disadvantages are you need a support staff for multiple business models. So if you have both advertising and subscription and community, you need a community manager and you need the sales staff for advertising and the sales staff for subscription and they actually know different things. The advantage is that when the uh, markets shift, like they are right now, um, advertising may drop, but subscriptions might go up because people want they're looking for jobs and they need, you know, a better plan so they can have a better profile. So it, it, it gives, it costs you more, but it gives you, um, some stability. Um, here's one, uh, who, marketplace with, uh, community and affiliate and any guesses on that one? This is our friend, Amazon, yeah, Amazon, exactly. Um, they are the ultimate marketplace, of course, that's how they started out, but they've done an extraordinary job with community. I actually stuck the slide in after Jared's talk. Um, Jared talks a lot about their commitment to community, all those um, reviews provide them amazing amounts of value. But they did something else which I thought was really interesting. So they had the reviews, but the problem with that little button that makes them so much money, right, where you click it and you say was this useful, is it destroys the chronological order. Now the advantage of that is it's quality over order. The disadvantage is, is, there's no conversation. You destroy conversation. When you respond to somebody, you have no idea if it's gonna actually sit there or not, right? So what they did is they added in uh, comments. So comment on this review. They created a space for conversation and they created message boards because they realized that people's community, people's emotional connection to their site would make them feel more comfortable writing those reviews that were so valuable and would keep them coming back just to read it, all that, I mean, let's be honest reviews are not conversation and conversation is the thing that connects you with other human beings and then their affiliate program is insanely brilliant I mean I'm sure all of us you know have at one point or another maybe not all of us but we're pretty geeky in this room have tried out you know just adding an affiliate link to a book that we put up on our blog and um, the reason that's really brilliant is even if you never sell a single copy and make a penny yourself you're creating SEO for them they're everywhere on the web There's all these blogs linking back to them all over the place. So, you know, if you did sell a book, you know, they get their profit, you get their profit. But if they didn't, they are always the number one result when you search for any book on Google. And that drives insane amounts of traffic. So there's complexity in these business needs that have huge advantages. You might say, oh, gosh, I don't know if I want to build this little embed widget for bloggers to use, you know, only the very geekiest ones will do it and will it drive that much traffic? Well, it may not drive that much traffic, but it might radically change your page rank. And if it radically changes your page rank, you know, bada boom, suddenly Google's driving your traffic instead. And that's pretty interesting. So when you're going through your features and your functionality, you know, you need to prioritize and you need to sequence. So, if I'm thinking about this pattern, you know, the user gets the value, the user returns and gets more value, and then at some moment, human beings are what they are, they tend to feel like they start to owe the site something. And they'll reciprocate. Maybe uh, they might add a little content, you know, like um, the infamous uh, on all the mailing lists, uh, I've never posted before, but when they asked this question, I just felt like I had to say something. Um, they might add a little piece of content or they might actually contribute money to you and this is just, you know, the classic Wikipedia thing, you know, y- they provided a lot of value before they asked you for money and then even the people who aren't the hardcore Wikipedians will see a spelling error and go, gosh, I do use this all the time and it'd be a shame if the spelling error." St- so I'll pop in real quick and just fix this one thing. Um, Reciprocity is one of the core concepts of persuasion, and it's a really useful one. Um, giving people things before you take anything back works extremely well. If you've ever gotten one of those little, um, oh, you know, the, the nonprofit sends you a, begs you for money, and they give you the mailing um, thing stickers that you put on your envelopes, they're actually doing that very consciously because they found that if they gave you a present first, even just mailing stickers, that you would actually be much, much, much more likely to donate money. Um, it's, our, it's, it's called gifting and it's just our nature to always re- reciproc- re- reciprocate. I don't know why I can't use words today. I, I'm talking too much. So um, one of the things you need to think about a little bit is, okay, am I going to work on a feature that charges people or am I going to work to make sure that my users are getting value? Well, are your users already getting value or not? If they're not yet, you're not yet convinced that they're getting value, and you can get, learn this a lot of different ways. You can do surveys, um, you can do user research. Then you might want to focus your time there. If they are already getting value, I know they really want that extra feature. That would be a swell extra feature, but maybe it's time to start building in the opportunities for people to repro- reciprocate. I give up the word. I stop. Reciprocate. Thank you. I love this audience. You're helping. <laughs> So, um, there's two concepts here. The reason I wrote both prioritize and sequence is because priority is the most important thing. But sequencing is about what do you have to do first, what are the preconditions? So the most important thing might be that people have to buy a book, but they can't buy a book unless we get their user information. So maybe we have to build sign up first, even though it's more important that they buy the book, you know? And that's like a really stupid duh example, but there's really subtle complicated examples where you might see a feature that somebody built on a website and go, wow, that looks really stupid, and then three weeks later something else comes along and you go, okay, now I know why that was there. Um, it's, it's very true of social sites. So finally, have you got metrics? Do you know what matters? So I don't know how many of you guys were in um, the, uh, the uh, Making Trouble panel yesterday. But somebody was saying, you know, I make these really humongous deliverables and these beautiful, beautiful deliverables so people will take you seriously and I need to be taken seriously by the business. Well, one of the re- ways that the business will take you seriously, and this happened at eBay, I have friends who told me the story, is by changing the numbers. Um, so um, actually, I'll, go, I'll stay here for a second longer. So what they did was... Um, they said, hey, we've been looking at sign up and we think we might be able to make a couple design tweaks. I think if we made this button bigger and we made this other button into a link we could increase the number of signups, you know, just a little design change. And they knew that they were measuring those numbers very quick, very intensely. And they did it and they radically improved signups. So then they said, Hey, we have this other design idea. What if we do this and this? And suddenly the designers are starting to make real contributions and able to affect the product roadmap because they're able to prove via the numbers that they're providing business values. So, um, sometimes you can spend a lot of time arguing or sometimes you can spend some time making the company a lot of money and, um, Depending on the company, one way may work better than the others. Um, so far, moving metrics is good. If you have a company that doesn't measure anything, it, 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 sexy deliverables might be better. Um, so there are a bunch of web experience metrics. Um, and uh, this is a, a little bit of an older article by Aaron Marcus, but um, how can you reduce costs? You know, How can you reduce uh, development time? Like maybe uh, the crazy Anders approach of uh, making these amazing HTML, XML prototypes will reduce the development time, or maybe it'll make better features because it'll have better usability um, because you're able to test it more accurately. Um, so it reduces customer care calls. I mean, customer, customer center is usually a great place to try to figure out what metrics you can change. I call them and i like, okay, How many calls are you getting? You know, what's your number one problem? And then I do a design fix for that. What's your number two problem? And then, you know, I report back to my boss and I say, you know, we've gone from 500 calls on this problem to five. And each of those calls took two minutes and a customer care person is paid X. You know, that's that's pretty straightforward stuff. Sales increasing revenue. This is a great one. Um, If you uh, see Luke Rubowski's book, uh, Designing Forms, you know that we can get people to sign up. You know we can get them through checkout. You know it. Joshua's been giving a lot of talks, I just see you over there and I have to wave every few minutes. Um, Joshua's been giving some great talks on sign up, so you should all corner him and demand he tell you everything he knows about sign up um, as a way of of showing some real business value. Um, You know, product sales, can you get people to buy more? Can you get the audience size up? Like I was saying, you know, which share button, is the share button findable? Like something as little as making sure that, that, that share button's findable could actually give you this nice little spike in traffic and if you're tracking your referrers, you know it's coming from, you know, Gmail or Hotmail or something, you can, you can dot, the, dot the I's and cross the T's. Like what are the things you're doing in the interface that are changing people's behavior that is meeting those, those that money, that metrics? Um, and then, uh, improve effectiveness, success rate, user error, uh, user satisfaction. Um, user satisfaction used to be a hard one for us to argue for, but then there was this wonderful HBR article that said the number way, way to determine user satisfaction is the question, would you recommend this to a friend? So now you can just put that in a survey. And um, it's pretty easy to uh, do a search on that article. And now you can prove that you—you know—you can prove that you've changed user satisfaction because that homepage redesign. You can then do a survey: Did, Would you recommend this to a friend? It's a three-question survey, so you can actually get people to complete it. And boom—you've—you've you've got proof. Um, and anything that's written in HBR, your boss will believe. It's really amazing. Um, if Harvard Business Review writes about it, it must be true. Um, so uh, user satisfaction, et cetera, ease of use, ease of learning, trust. I mean, uh, if you're a nonprofit, you have a lot of these things. Carl Fast keeps reminding us that um, we think as IA's a lot about, if we think, I guess I'm saying we're not thinking about business enough, but he says even beyond business, are we changing the culture? Are we changing the community? Are we changing the mission? You know, what are, what, how are we changing the world? And that depends, of course, of where you work, but we do have the opportunity to, to make significant change. Um, User experience also affects uh, all these other metrics, business metrics, leads, sales, retention. Um, Leads is really interesting. If you have a sales team, you might actually go talk to them. Um, I used to think of uh, getting more sales as, you know, oh, there's that link down at the bottom. And it's okay that the link's down at the bottom, but if that link just sends an email, what they have is they have what they call low quality leads. Just people often can't find any other email and they'll write sales and they'll say, how come that button doesn't work anymore? Or I'm logged out of my account. But if you can actually drive them through a process that says, you know, with a few drop downs saying, you know, what are you inquiring about and what business are you with and everything like that, you can actually reduce the cost that sales has to determine what's a viable lead. And that's a huge business change, uh, development costs, et cetera. So customer satisfaction, these are all, these are all good stuff. Um, so I would just kind of want to ask you guys, you know, actually, why don't you take a minute and talk to somebody like, what market do you think you're in? And what's one thing that you could do to, uh, to change um, the effectiveness of your business? Um, and what are the direct IA metrics? So I kind of, uh, I flew through those slides. So I apologize for that. But maybe we can have a nice long conversation period. And if you guys have more to tell us, I'm sure there's as much knowledge in this audience as there is on this stage. Um, let's talk, let's talk about it. Okay, so um, the question is, um, are multiple models good and should you do apply them at once or have a phased approach? Um, I think it's very hard to do lots of things all at once and be good at any of them. Um, uh, I think it's good to ha- start with a, a single model and see how that plays out and then ask yourself, what are very similar or complementary models? So you might start out with an advertising model, right? Straight. Uh, display advertising, and you might say, okay, so how can we dial this up? Like, what if we can do contextual advertising and then dial that up? Can we do, uh, you know, search advertising, you know, kind of building on your strength? And okay, we've now learned how to sell things to people. Maybe we should look at the subscription model because it's similar to that model and add that in. You also might want to look at um, how does my market change over time? I know that sounds complicated. So let's say you're hot jobs, right? You're all about people getting jobs. Well, as the market—the um, market we were in two years ago—it was you know the infamous uh, sellers' market, right? Everybody, nobody was looking for a job, and you could charge, you know, the recruiters, right? You could st- then the market dropped. Now there's a lot of job people on the on the street. Well, then what's an interesting opportunity there? Maybe you don't want to charge the job hunters, but maybe instead you might give them an enhanced listing or a special resume or bonus, you know, and then it becomes, you know, okay, here's, you know, this... uh, advertising version for the job posters and then you can add in the secondary model of a subscription model to get an enhanced listing or show up higher on search results. So you can play with these relationships, like, and then, or, you know, cause the markets will go up and down and the advantage that we've found with having multiple markets uh, is as one 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 business model is sinking, the other one is rising. So that's what I meant by it gives you some stability. The problem is if you're in a lot of businesses, it's got huge overhead. You know, you've got all these people who are trying to figure things out. So, I guess there's some entrepreneurs in the audience who are actually worried about the design of business models. I have to say that the reason I went into product management is because I wanted to design business models and I wanted to design uh, technology approaches. I wanted to think about all these things, so. Austin? Um, Well, you know, the thing is that your business should be able to prioritize. What is the thing that makes the most money is usually the one or um, Prioritization can be two things, it can either be optimizing, so this business model makes us the most money, or it can be an investment. We think that this business model is going to become interesting three years from now. So you need to talk with your business owners, talk it through, maybe talk to some marketing people and um, ask them, you know, is it more important that we move this metric or that metric? Do you want us to have more people, you know, clicking on the ad? Or we think community is actually going to give us a long-term benefit, do we want to start introducing people? to uh, the new community features. But they, if your business owners can't choose, which came up in the other panel, um, what I try to do is I do the active listening technique, which is I ask them to talk and they ask them to talk and I say, okay, so what I've heard is the community is gonna be very important to us in the next three years, and that's the most important thing we need to move but we still need to keep some space for advertising. And then they'll either go, yuck, yuck, no, 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 you didn't hear me at all, or they'll go, yes, okay, that's right. So if you can't say, can you tell me what's first, you can, you can do this, I'm repeating back to you trick. And it actually is extremely effective. I haven't had that one fail me quite yet. Um, back, Liv. The question is, uh, if the business is asking what does the user need to accomplish, then how does that relate to the question that most uh, design teams ask, which is, how are we meeting user needs? Um, that's where at least I've seen we talk about it as preconditions. I know that sounds a little odd, but, um, or dependencies. So the most important thing for the user to do is to buy a book, right? So what are the preconditions for buying a book? Finding a book, being able to save things, being able to talk to people who've read it before. You know, the things the user are asking for become the preconditions. Um, In a marketplace, you want the buyers to be very happy because the sellers will follow the buyers. Um, you know, so again, the user needs become really important. Um, you just have to keep talking that through. But you can tie them all together, I think. Are you seeing conflict? Agreed. I think that's a huge, I I agree that's a huge problem. Um, Many, many user-centered designers are spending so much time with the users that they, uh, they get really caught up in the user needs. And they forget to map them back to the business needs. And, um, one of the biggest user needs is, do the users actually need this business to exist? I mean, that's a really important question, because if the users don't need the business to exist, the business is doing something wrong. That's, you know, our classic argument. And then um, if the users need the business to exist, they're going to reciprocate with, you know, whatever value they're receiving. They're going to either pay for it or build on one of these business models. So that relationship has to be really crisp and clear, and that's why, Um, Almost uh, all the very smart companies in the Silicon Valley focus on creating value first with the understanding that the money will come. Um, Obviously, like greenhouse gases, sometimes the money doesn't come and the icebergs melt and then the little startup is dead. But if they can create value, the money does usually come. You just have to tie it together. Okay, so the question is, um, if community is focused on uh, generating traffic, is there risks and hoping the money will come, is there risks? There's huge risks because especially with social sites, one of the things people don't realize with social sites is they're exponential, which means that um, from a technology point of view, they require massive amounts of hardware to run. We've all heard the stories about Twitter, the fail whale, Friendster, taking 10 minutes to load a page, et cetera, et cetera. If you focus on traffic um, without thinking about money, you have to, uh, you're gonna be in trouble. Now, the thing is that what many, many startups in the Valley um, It's funny, you talk to Reid Hoffman, he'll say the most important thing you have to have, or actually uh, Mark Anderson, he'll say the most important thing you have to have is a distribution strategy. How will you get people to come to the site? If you ask Reid Hoffman, he'll say the most important thing you have to have is a funding strategy. So you can either think about making money now, or you can sell your soul to a VC. If you don't have money, you will die. Your servers will go down, you will fail. So you either have to try to make money fast, but the problem is that may interfere with your ability to really true, find the true user value. And some things have business models baked in from day one, which is awesome. Or you have to make sure you have sufficient funding to survive that period of experimentation and proving value. And this is like one of the hardest questions of the world. I'm, I'm far from an expert on it. But um, you can do Basecamp style. I mean, if you want, uh, let's be honest, no VC on the planet would, it, would invest in, in 37 signals. They would be very stupid. Um, we all love them, we think they're amazing, but their market is incredibly small. They do project management software that people use. It's just, it's just not doesn't make enough money to interest a VC. So from day one, they had to consider their business model. I mean, that's something I didn't talk about at all, but what is how big is the market? How, how large is the market size? And that's going to affect your funding strategy. But money's oxygen. Money has to come in somewhere. You can't ignore money, period. You, just, you have to just figure out where it's showing up and from whom is it going to come. Is it going to come from your users or is it going to come from a sugar daddy who will be asking for something later? You know, and you have to decide if you can live with that. Uh, Facebook took a lot of money from Microsoft and we'll see if that turns out okay for them. So, yeah. Oh, there's always, um, there's always huge trade-offs. I mean, if you ask a user about advertising, you know, do you want advertising on the site? They say, no, I don't want advertising, it gets in my way. And if you actually then you know, say, well, would you like to pay $10 a month for it? They go, no, I don't think I want to pay $10 a month for it. Um, so you've got these problems of the user saying, don't do any of these things that will actually make you money. And then you can't pay your servers, and the servers go down. and you know. So you know, there's, there's always going to be the trade-offs. Um, actually, when I was at Yahoo, we did a big survey on advertising. And, it, and every single person understood that the advertising was why they could use all these free services. Nobody was actually offended by it unless it did uninitiated sound or floated all over the page and played catch me. So um, that's another thing is when you talk to the user's needs, you say, well, how do you feel about advertising? Okay. Tell me more about that. Okay. Oh, you know, you kind of do understand it. You understand why it's there. You just don't like it when, you know, you're in the middle of work and suddenly, you know, some movie ad is playing some music. So you can kind of try to find that place. And even though that advertiser might pay you 16 more times to play music or to play Catch Me with HTML, you you have to find that balance in between. Okay, they'll put up with advertising up to here. It's better if you can find the win-wins. That's why the shopping model is so amazingly popular. The place where the thing that's making you money is the thing that the user is looking for. You get rich. Google's printing money, you know? Even now they're still printing money. It's ridiculous. They got rich because they figured out how to put the business model and the user model in alignment. And if you can figure that out, you're done. You're gold. So there's tensions, there's trade offs. If the users go away, you don't make money. If the money goes away, you die. It's, it's, a, it's a balance, it's contextual. Sorry. If it's Condi NAS, can try, work on reducing costs. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I was going to say, if you're a magazine group, then you can focus on reducing costs. I don't know. I mean, that's another place where you can affect the, the equation. Maybe the user, that, sorry, just saying that there's like a lot of different levers you can pull, you know? So sometimes just being able to do things more effectively can make a difference too. That's why layoffs happen. They're very depressing, but they reduce costs and they keep the people who are still employed alive. Eventually, you reduce the cost to a degree where you're just like a ghost ship and then there's no, user, there's no value being created any longer and then you're also not viable. So um, then it's good to try a new model, perhaps. I think that's one of the, been the biggest problems with publishing is they don't seem to be trying out new models, new business models at all. Okay, yes? Um, I definitely know more about online stuff because I'm sort of a web native in that I've been working on web stuff forever. Um, so, I've seen interesting synergies that people have tried. Um, for example, um, like Blockbuster tried to do a web play. Um, I think the reason New York Times is probably the most successful uh, successful um, web newspaper website is because, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma. Um, what he said is if you're a big established company, it's very hard to do new and innovative things, and the entire staff of uh, of New York Times had just read this book right around the time they were thinking about launching a website, and so what they did is they you know, contacted Clayton Christensen and brought him in and had him talk uh, to them, and, and he advised them, build your web business in a separate building. So they bought a building, you know, 15, 20 blocks away, and it was annoying for the CEO had to shuttle back and forth between two buildings. But the fact is that because they were out of the building, they were able to do something very, very different. They were able to go web native and really understand it and not have to fight with the circulation department and not fight with Bill Scott, the editorial team, and actually create a true web business, which has ended up being, you know, just continually more and more successful. And it doesn't see the massive numbers yet that the the parent paper makes but it's a, viable, it's a viable business, and now they're all in one building, now that they've proved they're viable. So I would say if you're, if you're an offline business trying to create an online business model, you have to ask yourself, what is that role of the website? Am I really looking to try to see if I can create an internet version of it, at which point it might be worth, like, moving people into a separate little office? and letting them go to town? Or is this just advertising for it? And then the metrics, of course, are, you know, are you getting magazine subscriptions, et cetera, et cetera? And look at your competitors. How are they doing it? I mean, everything on earth is on the web, and somebody's doing it well. So who can you, who can you learn from? But the biggest thing is the offline business can so easily destroy the online business's opportunity to be effective that getting them apart from each other is actually usually very helpful, unless they are just for sure where. That's my story. Yes, Mr. Baum. How sustainable is that really? Could you be very loud? How sustainable is that, really? Uh, you mean doing a separate, a separate office? I mean, you know, long term. It's not sustainable. Eventually, well, at least what happened with the New York Times and has happened with other people is the um, online version be gets its culture together, has proved their value, or not proved their value, and it's time to either merge them back into the parent company so that knowledge is brought back into the parent company, or Kill them dead, because they haven't managed to succeed. It's it's never a long-term solution. It's a short-term solution, but short-term could be five years. I mean, in business life, that's that's a pretty good run. Um, but yeah, they're all back in the same big building now, and the uh, parent company is learning a lot from the online and vice versa. So, but they never had a shot otherwise, because they were always this silly little people in the corner doing something stupid that had to be watched. Um, so, I just. Sometimes you just need to leave people alone and see if they can pull something off. And I think there's probably been people who've tried it and haven't worked for them. Okay? Time to go. I've been killed. Thank you.
0: To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxandarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.